This is the word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 6, verse, or Genesis chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground two and two male and female went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah and after seven days. The waters of the flood came upon the earth. The last time that we gathered to consider the book of Genesis, we examined the first five verses of the seventh chapter of the book of Genesis. Prayerfully, there was a a good balance of encouragement, admonishing, and reproving from God's word. That there was a balance of all of those things. Prayerfully, we, as we learned of the testing of Noah's faith and how this man of God persevered by the preserving grace of God in the midst of opposition for 120 years, we too were encouraged that God, by his grace, will help to preserve us, help us to persevere in the midst of trial And opposition that we face today. For just as the testing of Noah's faith was for the purpose of strengthening Noah's faith. For the purpose of refining Noah's faith. And in the process bringing much glory to God. So it is with God's children today. When our faith is tested. It will be an opportunity to put into practice. And let me say that slower. When our faith is tested. It will be an opportunity for they are opportunities for us to put into practice all that we've heard, all that we've learned from God's word. When our faith is tested, it is not the time for us to cower in fear. When our faith is tested, it is not the time for us to throw down, as it were, our shield of faith. When our faith is tested, it is not the time for us to lay down the sword of the spirit, to take off the helmet of salvation, but just the opposite. When our faith is tested, it is the very time, the very opportunity, the very moment that we are to take up the shield of faith, to be equipped with the sword of the spirit, to put back on. And we should never take off the helmet of salvation. When tested, that is when we must stand and fight, not cower in fear. Faith and obedience is the mantra of the Christian life. Noah's faith was tested. And what was the response of Noah when his faith was placed into the refiner's fire? Genesis 7 and verse 5. Noah did all that God commanded him. Noah did not some of what God commanded him. Noah did all that God commanded him. And prayerfully, just as Much as you were encouraged, and I do pray that you were encouraged, I do pray that you were also admonished and reproved by God's word that commands us to not only walk by faith, but the true evidence of our faith is walking in obedience to the commands of God. We are not called to live out a faith that is absent of action. On the contrary, brothers and sisters, we are called to live out 
our professions of faith in obedience to God's word. Or the evidence of our profession is obedience to God's word. God has regulated the lives of his people by Holy Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. As the children of God, we are commanded to live in accordance to the law of God because we are the children of God. Parents don't disobey their parents' orders. If they disobey their parents' orders, they are showing they are not their children's parents. Or their parents are not their, you know what I mean. I'm not even going to try to work that out. We learn that as believers, we are not to, we are not living under the law as unbelievers. You hear that? As believers, we are not living under the law as unbelievers are living under the law. The unbeliever is accountable to the law of God and under the condemnation of the law of God, even when he obeys God's law. Even when he obeys, he is still under the condemnation of God's law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no man can be saved. So the believer is not under the law like the unbeliever is under the law. The believer is accountable to the law, but not like the unbeliever. He is no longer what? The believer is no longer under the condemnation of the law. Because when he fails in Christ, or because when he fails, because he is in Christ, he's under grace. You are under grace. The believer, you are under the law, but not under the law like the unbeliever is under the law. You are under the law, but you are also in Christ. So that when you fail, your failures have been covered by Christ. You are therefore under grace. You will not be under the condemnation of the law when you fail, Because Christ has kept the law for you. Somebody, please say amen. You should be thanking God for that every single day. This, brothers and sisters, this is classical Christian orthodoxy. This is Christianity 101. This is also distinctive to Reformed theology. The wonder of the law and the grace of God. You are under the law. You've been brought into the grace of God. Now God brings you back to the law, not to shackle you down, but to give you wings to fly. That is the wonder of the law of God. It is not your enemy. Not any longer. It's your friend. Amen. We must not see the law as wicked. For the law is not wicked. The law is the holy standard and character of God. We were wicked. Not are. We were. But there is remaining sin in us. The law, the scripture, the command, the God's word, however you'd like to substitute it, it all means the same thing. It is meant to sanctify us from the world and unto Christ. Sanctify us from the world and unto Christ. The Holy Spirit utilizes his holy law to do what? What, what is the utilization of the law of God? It is utilized to prepare us to die. And to die well. To die to who? To die to you. To die to yourselves. To die to ourselves. God's word is not supposed to cause you only to feel comfortable. You should never come and say, ah, that was, yeah, no, I was kind of squirming in my seat. Not sure if I'm coming back next week. God's word is not only a staff, it is also a rod. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your law and your grace, they comfort me. Both comfort and correction. We must not reject God's word when it uncomfortably calls us to die to ourselves and to this world. Just as Noah was called to die to this world by entering into the ark. So each time that God's word is brought to bear upon our conscience, it is also calling us to die to this world and enter deeper, deeper, enter, go further into Christ. Be conformed to Christ. Do not be conformed to this world. And listen, brothers and sisters, we've got to be honest. We must be honest with God. We, we must be honest and confess our weaknesses. We must confess that we love this world more than we should. And let us pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, teach us to detach our affections, detach from our affections to this world and shift our affections to God and his holy word. Amen. May God continue to raise up men who faithfully preach God's holy law, calling people to repent of their breaking of the law. And may God raise up godly men who call people to turn to Christ by faith. For it is by faith through grace that you are saved, by grace through faith that you are saved, and who call men and God's people back to God's word to obey it. May God raise up faithful men to do so. It's not popular teaching, but it's faithful teaching. Not popular teaching. It won't be on TBN. It won't be on the Word Network. God forbid we... Well, if, if that ever happens, then praise be to God. It's not popular teaching. It's faithful teaching. And faithful teaching is most often than not, not popular teaching. And now today, by the grace and help of God, we shall be challenged to see scripture in a way that may be unfamiliar to some. But I pray that the end result will be that you are encouraged and also enlightened by God's word. So I have just three points for you this morning for our consideration. Number one, the waters prevailed. Number one, the waters prevailed. Chapter seven and verse 11. Listen to this God's word. In the 600th year of Noah's life. In the second month. On the 17th day of the month. And on that day. On that day. All the fountains of the great deep. Burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth. Forty days and forty nights. On the very same day. Noah and his sons. Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Noah's wife. And the three wives of his sons were with, were with them encountered or entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which they there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. We now come to the account of the flood. And as we do, we must 
briefly reflect on what has taken place. The Lord God has brought forth his just judgment upon all flesh, for all flesh have corrupted their way. Verse 5 of chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. Among the wicked, violent and corrupt flesh of the earth, the Lord God graciously willed to give grace to Noah. Verse five of chapter six. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah lived by faith and was declared righteous because of his faith in God. Noah lived blamelessly before God and also blamelessly before man, obeying all of the commands of God. Noah walked with God for 120 years. Noah's faith was tested as he obeyed the commands of God, building the ark, living in obedience to the law of God written on his heart. All while being opposed by that wicked and corrupt generation. Noah walked with God. Not just faith. In what he declared as a preacher of righteousness. But Noah exemplified his faith in action for 120 years until the ark was complete. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 120 years later, God speaks to Noah again. Noah has stood the test of faith. Noah has stood the test of time, if you will. God gave Noah the strength to persevere. God preserved Noah through the fiery testing. And now God declares that his testing in that world, the world that once was, that testing is over. It, it is almost as if God is saying to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into thy master's rest. Verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. This is a point that is without much detail. There is not much detail in the narrative, but the imagery is escapable or inescapable. And we must not read past this passage without considering the weight of the immense destruction that took place during this specific time. Noah, his family, all, all, the, all of the animals enter the ark while the fountains of the great deep burst forth. What is that? That is underground reservoirs of water. Underground reservoirs of water that are bursting forth in volcanic-like eruptions Onto the surface. There was water bursting forth from below. The heavens now are also being opened. And that is not rain as it were. Like we experience. That is a, a, a shower like tsunami. A shower like tsunami. There's a, a video that if you are interested on, on YouTube. You can check it out. It is, a, it is a, an atomic bomb going off in the ocean. And the waters rise so high. And as I was watching it, I, I began to think 
That is just a, a, a fraction of what was happening all over the entire world at this particular time. Water is rising a mile high in this atomic bomb going off in the ocean. Imagine water is rising from above and water is coming down from uh, uh, up high all over the world. This is absolute destruction. Water came up on and from below or from below and upon all flesh. We don't know what that is like. We've seen some images in Texas as of late. Where there are people who are on their rooftops trying to escape the floods. And there, there is rescue and relief that is coming to rescue them from their rooftops. As light drizzles or as rain is coming down, water is rising. But if you can imagine for a moment, water rushing, uh, uh, gushing out of the ground all over the world. The imagery is that the very foundations of the earth world that once was began to break apart. It, it, would, it would sound like the most terrifying thunder, the, the, the most uh, cracking lightning, the, the most disturbing and frightening volcanic, volcanic eruptions and, and crashing waves. The sounds of crashing waves all over the world. We don't know what that looks like. We've gotten small images. We've seen tsunamis in Japan. We've seen people rush from the, the shores as water is running toward them. Imagine that everywhere. Imagine the absolute devastation of this catastrophe and let us be clear there were those in far-off lands I, I have not done so to make i have not done such a good job to make this clear there were those in far-off lands who never heard the message of noah noah's message did not reach to the ends of the world as it were those who lived in noah's vicinity probably most likely heard the message if they were traveling to far off lands, they may have had in conversation. There's a guy who lives in my city who says the world's going to be destroyed. He's crazy. It may have gone far, but there are definitely people. There were definitely people who did not and never did hear the message of Noah. They were, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, unaware when judgment waters came. Presumably millions who were eating drinking, as the Lord Jesus Christ says, marrying and given in marriage, that when the fountains of the great deep burst forth and when the heavens opened, they were absolutely unaware. I said before that they were unbelieving, and they were. But countless millions, presumably millions, were also unaware. Now listen to this. Unaware, but aware. Unaware, but aware. Aware what? Aware that God existed. For that has been written on their hearts. Aware that there is a law that they must obey. For that too has been written on their hearts. Aware that they will be held accountable. And be stand before a judgment. For their sins. 
They suppress those truths, though. Not aware or not unaware of God, but unaware of his judgment that was coming on that day. You hear that? Not unaware of God. Or not, yeah, not unaware of God. Am I saying this right? Yeah, okay. But unaware of judgment that would come that day. It was a long wedding yesterday. Give me grace. We must be prepared to answer the critic who says, how does God judge those who simply do not know? What about the person who's never heard the gospel? What about the person who has never heard of Jesus? Never. How could God judge those who have never heard? We must be prepared to answer that there is no one righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and turned away from God. The person who is in the jungle, the person who is in the desert, the person who is in the mountains is not guiltless of sin. They are all guilty of sin. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So when God judged the world, He judged righteously and not unrighteously. When the waters came, although they were unaware, they were still guilty of sin. Therefore, God was not unjust. The waters came and they were unaware. So will it be for this generation. This wicked generation knows all that that wicked generation of Noah's day knew. They know God's law and they suppress God's law. They know that judgment will come someday. But they will not be ready when it does. They will be unaware. Let that be an encouragement to you. To be diligent in sharing the gospel with your unsaved friends, family and neighbors. Because there will come a day that you will be ready for. You are already in the ark, as it were. Call them to come in. For there is a judgment coming and no man knows the day. No man knows the hour. So let us be ready. The Bible says in verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters increased, but the ark was bore up. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the earth, of the waters. The waters prevailed and increased, but the ark floated. Verse 19, and waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The water prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits or 20 feet. That means the highest mountain was 20 feet underwater. The Bible says the waters increased, they prevailed. The waters increased, they prevailed. How many times? Four times. We've learned that when the scriptures repeat a thing, it is for the purpose of emphasis. The prevailing waters have prevailed. It is a military term. They have overcome the world. They have overcome the earth. They've overcome all flesh. And they have risen to such a degree that the highest mountain, if you're thinking of Mount Everest, maybe that was the highest mountain in that day. There could have been higher mountains covered in water up to 20 feet. The waters have prevailed the highest mountain. There is, now, now 
if you can think about how high Mount Everest is. From the tip of the mountain to the base of the earth. There is no space in all of the world that is not covered or prevailed by water. Why? Because water has risen and has water stopped falling. Think of a a cup that is being filled. There is no space. The earth is being filled, as it were, with water. There is no space between the skies above and the earth below that is not filled with water. I, I hope that you're getting that imagery. If you could imagine a ball being filled to the brim. I said a glass of water. A ball being filled to the brim with water. There is no more space at the top. As the waters prevailed over all flesh, the ark remained afloat. The ark was bore up by the waters. The waters did not overcome the ark. By the grace of God, there was a refuge amidst the judgment of God. There was one hiding place. There was one safe haven. There was one place where the waters would not prevail. And it was within the security of the preservation of the ark. The waters engulfed the world, but those in the ark were secure. It was coming from below and above. And yet the waters, because the ark was covered, with pitch would not come in because the the, the ark was atoned for. Remember that? Covered. No waters would come in. And as it is with Christ, when you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you will be saved from the judgment of God. You shall be kept secure in the day of God's pouring out of his wrath because you have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. The waters of God's judgment, as it were, will not come nigh thee. But there's something more to this, isn't there? Number two, our second point, the biblical theology of decreation. The biblical theology of decreation. Brothers and sisters, what is the Lord intending that we learn from this judgment by water? Well, we have learned a number of things, haven't we? We've learned that God is holy, that he will not allow sin to prevail unpunished. We've learned that man is corrupt, that he must give an account for his disobedience to God. We've learned that God is gracious to whom he will be gracious to. God is merciful to whom he will be merciful to. God showed a special loving grace to Noah, gave him faith to believe in the skull-crushing seed of the woman. To Noah's family, God displayed, listen to this, to Noah's family, God displayed common preservation. Not common grace. There was only one kind of grace. Special grace. Grace in which we have been saved from the wrath of God. But to Noah's family, God showed special preservation. He preserves them. He allows them to live. They were not all given special grace. They were not all regenerated. For we shall see that Ham was cursed. But God chose not to judge them along with the wicked on that day. 
cursed Ham would still stand before the judgment seat of God. Just not on that day. Does that make sense? And as the judgment waters fill the earth, Noah and his family are safe in the ark. They will not physically die that day. But is there anything else that we are to learn from this catastrophic event? Is there something more that God is calling to our attention? That, that God, if you will, is screaming for us to pay attention to? I believe there is. God is using Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to show us biblical theology. What is biblical theology? Biblical theology identifies various themes in sections of the Bible and traces them to themes throughout the scriptures. Biblical theology is, is not something created by man. Nor is it a practice that is imposed on the text. For we are learning biblical theology from the authors of the Bible. The authors of the Bible teach us how to do biblical theology, if you will. For example, when we read Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 11, we find Moses describing and interpreting, listen to this, the past acts of God on Israel's behalf in order to call them to be a faithful son who worships the one true God. Uh, Moses is, is showing them what God has done in the past, what God will do now, and what God will do in the future. And he's bringing up the past acts of God to show what God will do and what, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. That's biblical theology. Moses, or, or consider First Samuel chapter 12 where the prophet Samuel reflects on the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed on Israel's behalf in the past in order to remind them of how they must not turn from the Lord lest they be swept away along with the enemies of God like in the past. That's biblical theology. What was the prophet of Samuel doing? Again, biblical theology. We find this in the sermon and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sermons of Peter, Stephen, the teachings of Paul and the list goes on and on. We learn biblical theology from the scriptures. Now, we learn how to pick up. Again, I'm going to repeat myself so that you're hearing the same thing in another way. We, we learn how to pick up on the past acts of God in order to give us insight into present or future acts of God. There's a, a good lecture by a man by the name of Francis Folks called The Acts of God. If you're interested, I had to read that for seminary. Why is this important? Why is this important? Why, why are we saying this right now in the seventh and in just a few moments, eighth chapter of the book of Genesis? Why? Because Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing biblical theology. This is exactly what is taking place in the seventh and eighth chapter of the book of Genesis. The catastrophe of the flood is not only meant us meant to point us to devastation that brings uh, uh, upon all flesh a flood of destruction, but it is meant to point us back to God's initial work of creation and highlights God's act of listen reversing initial creation. Reversing creation. What's the point? What's the, what's our first, our second point? D creation. Creation in reverse. Are you getting that? 
What's taking place is God is reversing his creation and he's showing you that he's reversing his creation by saying a lot of things that you should recognize from the first and second chapter of the book of Genesis. Think about chapters one and two of the book of Genesis. All that we find in those chapters are foundational for all that we learn in subsequent, that is later, revelation. What do the first and second chapters of God's word teach us? They teach us about God. They teach us that when nothing was, that is, there was God, right? They teach us that God transcends time. God is eternal. They teach us that that God created the heavens and the earth. They give us the macro view, the big picture of creation. Then we come to the second chapter and we are given a more narrow view. Remember that? Micro, macro. We are given a more microscopic view of creation. It is a narrowed view of man. A more focused view of man. A more focused view of the Garden of Eden. More focused view of the animals. Of man's union with woman. So what does the flood have to do with creation? Everything. How? The seventh and eighth chapters are meant to point us back to the first and second chapter of the book of Genesis. They are intended to show us that God is reversing what is he, what he has initially created. God said that all flesh have corrupted their way. Therefore, God corrupted man. God would destroy what man has destroyed. Think about this. Here's your biblical theology. In Genesis chapter 1, God created all men and all livestock and creeping things and beasts of the field according to their kinds. In Genesis chapter 6, God will destroy man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Is that language similar for no reason? No. God is using that similar language for a reason to say, hey, this language looks familiar. I've seen this before. Where have I seen this before? What is God doing there for? God is showing you by using specific language or themes, right? Hey, go back to this. It's, it's, I'm pointing you back to a past act of mine, of his. In Genesis chapter 1, God sees all the, that he has made, and behold, it was very good. In Genesis chapter 6, God sees all that he has made. And it has been corrupted. In Genesis chapter 1, God works the work of creation. And on the Sabbath, he rests. He rests on the seventh day. In Genesis chapter 7, God declares that he will destroy all flesh in seven days. In Genesis chapter 1, man is commanded to be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis chapter 6, man's sin has multiplied. And as a result... In chapter 7, God will bring judgment waters that have multiplied over man. You see that? In Genesis chapter 2, God breathes into man the breath of life. In Genesis chapter 7, everything on dry land. The Bible says, in whose nostrils was the breath of life. Died. God took the breath that he gave back. See this reversal here? He's reversing creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. What was the initial state of the earth when it was first brought forth in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1? It was a sphere of water. When God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
That was the initial creation. What was the earth in God's initial? God created the heavens and the earth. It was a sphere of water. Now in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, the earth is once again a sphere of water. This is biblical theology of decreation. It's a reversal of the creative order that has taken place. And the allusions to the first and second chapter of the book of Genesis are undeniable. One theologian said that there are more than 30 allusions. I was going to give you all 30 of them. I said, no, this, they're going to, their, their brains are going to fall out of their heads. As, were, as was mine as I was going through it. And what brings our attention to this biblical theology that's taking place? What, what is it that brings our attention? What, what is it that says, hey, look at this, look at this, look at this. What is it? It's a flood. It's a flood of judgment that causes us to pay attention to the themes and patterns that are intentionally being used by God once again. A great flood. The waters of judgment from a holy God upon disobedient creation that highlights for us the height from which man has fallen and the depths that he now suffers in because of his sin against God. This is only meant to teach us. This is not only meant to teach us what has happened to man in the past, but it's also meant to teach us what will happen to disobedient man, what, in the future. Remember, biblical theology shows us what happened in the past to show us what will happen in the future or in the present. For those who place their faith in Christ or for those who do not place their faith in Christ. Judgment has come upon the ark, but the ark is being held up. It will not be swallowed up. By faith, Noah has entered the ark. He's secure. He will not be swallowed up because God has rescued him. The flood, the picture of the flood will be used again. We've got a flood. When will we see a flood type again? In Egypt. In Egypt, where the Egyptians are hardening, hardening their hearts. They are suppressing the truth of God. Therefore, they will be judged by God. And as God uses a man, to redeem Israel out of that judgment before they are judged. They walk through dry land. But the judgment waters fall upon disobedient Egypt. They are judged in water. You see that? God, God is showing us here is a past act of God. It's pointing to a future act of God. This is biblical theology. Israel will, will be led by a redeemer who will guide them safely through the judgment waters. Again, it's pointing us back to the past works of God in that flood of Noah. And God is saying, I will do that again, but in a different way. This is a theme that will continue. Will we see waters again? Yes. It will point forward to the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be immersed in water when he is baptized. Remember that. And he comes out of the waters. There is a dove. We'll get to that in a moment. There is a dove who declares, uh, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is my beloved Son who I, I am well pleased. The Father says from heaven. And he will be the Redeemer to absorb the wrath of God on behalf of his people. He will drink the cup of wrath. He will suffer on behalf of his people so that he may bring them through the judgment safely. For there is another judgment coming. This decreation of Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8 is intended to point us to a final judgment that will not be with water, 
For the apostle Peter prophesies in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being preserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There will come another judgment. There will come another decreation of this creation. Can you imagine? That which we have seen in Noah's day. That which we got a glimpse of in Moses' day is pointing us forward to that which will eventually happen upon this world. A destroying of this world that is reserved for a day of which no man knows the day or time, only the Son of Man. For the unbeliever, that will be a day in which the Bible says they will pray and cry out for the rocks to fall down upon them. That, That it would end their misery, but there will be no end to that misery. It will be an eternal judgment. Are you in the ark? Are you in Christ? Because there will be no safe haven outside of him. Not in Muhammad, not in Buddha, not in Robert Taze Russell, not in Joseph Smith. Not in any kind of universalism where you will all be okay. Not so. If there's one thing that we should learn about the Bible is what it has said, it, it has happened. There are no false or empty promises here. God's word will be fulfilled. Third and finally. Oh, but for the believer, that will not be the end. It'll be the beginning. Number three, recreation. The biblical theology of recreation, biblical theology of decreation, biblical theology of recreation. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. Brother Ray, could you turn the AC on, please? Thank you, sir. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts, listen to the language, and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Listen to this. And God made a wind blow over the earth. And the waters subsided. The fountains of the great deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and rain, the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters abated. And the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, not on Mount Ararat, on the range of Mount Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. The Lord God remembered Noah. Once again, the scriptures use anthro, not promorphic, that's body parts, but anthropopathic, that is feeling, emotion, language to convey an eternal truth about God. Human language in, 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 intending to teach us an eternal truth about God. God did not say when he remembered, oh, yes, Noah, I forgot. I'm not going to forget you, Noah. I won't forget. The Lord remembered is pointing not to the Lord's uh, ability to remember, but the faithfulness of God. God keeps his promises. What God says he shall bring to pass. God has decreed. 
And God shall bring his word to pass. His word to pass. He, he shall not fail to keep his word. Joshua 21, 45. Not one. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. God promised to preserve Noah through the flood. And bring them through the judgment alive. And God kept his word. But God is not done with his creation. He has judged the world. He has decreated the world. But he will not leave the world in a, a, a destructed, disarrayed state of being. He will not leave the world formless and void, if you will. God did not leave, a, leave Noah in the boat to waste away. And God will not allow this earth to be wasted away either. The waters come to rest or the boat comes to rest. God says, uh, the word of God says, God remembered Noah, all the beasts of the field, all the livestock that were with him. And listen to this. And God made a wind, Ruach, to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. What is that? Well, remember, we're talking about a decreation. The world is a sphere of water. And, and, and what happens in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2? The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 8, God calls a, a, a wind to blow over the face of the waters. He is pointing you back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Here is the new creation now. It is going to be recreated over the face of the waters. There blew a great wind and the waters subsided. What is the Lord doing? Again, he is recreating. This is the biblical theology of recreation. In chapter 1, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of waters, of the waters, and now he is preparing to shape creation once again. In chapter 8, Noah sends out a dove who is hovering over, as it were, the face of the waters, surveying the land for signs of, of life, creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God works six days. In the 8th chapter, the waters were restrained or ceased on a Friday. How do we know that? We're using the Jewish calendar. When we see second month, 17th day, that's not our calendar. That's their calendar. If you know their calendar, you will find out that these dates that they're talking about, they are all Fridays and Saturdays. <laughs> what is God doing? He's pointing to six work, six days of work, day of rest. When Noah sends out the raven and the doves, that's on a Sabbath. Or that's on a first day. It's the first day of the week. The first day of the week. After seven days, the first day of the week. He's sending out. He's sending out. First day what? Why is this first day important? Because just as God began his work of creation on the first day, so Noah begins to send out the dove to find creation on the first day. It's a biblical theology of recreation. In chapter 1, God rests on the seventh day from all the work and displays a pattern for man. In chapter 8, using the Jewish calendar, on what day does the ark come to rest? Seventh day. On the seventh day of the mountains, the, the ark comes to rest on the mountains, the range of Mount Ararat or, or, or of Ararat. In chapter one, God rested from all of his work. God promised rest to Adam. What does Noah's name mean? Rest. 
In the second chapter, the Lord God brought all the animals to Adam. In the sixth and seventh chapter, God brings all the animals to Noah. In chapter one, God commands man to be fruitful and multiply. In chapter eight, God commands man once again, be fruitful and multiply. In chapter two, God makes a covenant with Adam. And we will see at the end of chapter eight, God makes a covenant with Noah. There is so much more. Like I said, there is 30. I probably have given you maybe 10 to 12. 30 more allusions to the creation account. And all of this would be inconsequential. It it would just be happenstance. If we did not realize that this is inspired by God, written by God, and also that God is doing something here theological that is trying, that he is trying to communicate to his people. And what is that? That God has not abandoned his people. That he has not abandoned his creation. God is in the process of recreating that which he has decreated. It is Genesis 1 and 2 all over again, but we must not lose sight of what we learned in the first six, six chapters. The first six chapters are not, connect, are not disconnected from the rest of the Bible. Noah is the new Adam of the new creation. How do we know that? Think of the similarities. Scripture names three sons of Adam. Two were chosen, one was not. Scripture names three sons of Noah. Two will be chosen, one will not. Adam walked with God. Noah walked with God. God made a covenant with Adam on behalf of the world. God will make a covenant with Noah on behalf of the world. Adam was prophet, priest, and king of the new creation. Noah was prophet, priest, and king of the new creation, of the old creation. Adam, Noah is prophet, priest, and king of the new creation. Adam fell into sin in a garden. Noah will fall into sin in a vineyard. This is recreation, and it is meant to point us back and then forward. For God will choose another man in Joseph. To save his people from a famine of the land. To bring them into a new land. God will choose Moses to lead a people through the judgment waters. And into a land. A new land flowing with milk and honey. There is more. But all of these are meant to keep pointing us forward. Pointing us forward because Noah is not the rest giver. Joseph is not the rest giver. Moses is not the rest giver. It is all meant to point us to the one true rest giver. The Lord Jesus Christ. And it is meant to point us not to a, 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 a temporary new, new, new earth, but an eternal consummation, an eternal new heavens, and an eternal new earth that we are being ushered into by our Noah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Noah would deliver the physical bodies of his people, but not deliver their souls. And we are to fix our eyes, not on Noah, but on Christ, the second and better Adam, the true Adam, the faithful son, the sinless son, who would usher in a people to the eternal kingdom of God, wherein only dwells righteousness. What does scripture say? You know this verse. Therefore, if any man is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Does it only mean you're a new man? No. It means you are a part of his new creation. When Christ said it is finished, he initiated, inaugurated a new people, a new people, a new creation. You're not just a new person. That's true. But the first truth is that you are a part of the new creation of Christ. He is, Christ is God, as it were, creating a new heavens and a new earth. And you are a citizen of that new heaven and new earth. You're a part of the new creation. Hopefully that verse takes on a whole new meaning for you from now on. And what does Genesis chapter 7 and verse 8 teach us? It teaches us about the decreation from God because of the wickedness of man. But it doesn't end there. The recreation is a blessing from God. God in his mercy recreates God restores his image and the recreation is pointing us to the ultimate consummation, the completion of all things. This world is not the final world. This is not your final home. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Noah is not the rest giver. He will fail. He will again fall to the fruit of the vine. God will raise up Israel, another son of God. They will enter into a land of milk and honey. But it is not the eternal land of rest and Israel will fail. But just at right the time, at the right time, God sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law. He encountered the judgment waters. When he comes to the waters, the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. Where have you seen the dove before? Noah sends out a dove to scour the new creation. Here is that dove again, as it were, saying, behold, This is my beloved son. It's Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. But there's a difference. Christ will come through the waters. And he will come through perfectly as a perfect obedient servant of God. All past sons failed. He will not be like the disobedient sons of of God in the past. He will not be like Adam, not like Noah, not like Israel. He will be a faithful son of God all the way to the cross. He will go to the cross on what day? Friday. And he will bring rest to his people on the Lord's day. The first day of creation, he will recreate all over again. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption, makes all things new and now all creation As my brother Pete has said before, all creation groans. All creation groans and awaits the consummation of all things. And we, the people of God, look forward to the fulfillment of the book of Revelation chapter 21. And let me read it to you in closing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And it lamps. And its lamp is the Lamb. But its light, by its light the nations will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. For there will be no night there. They will bring into it glory and honor of all nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. For only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life live there. Can you wait? Can you imagine the day? That will be our new home. And it will never end. God, I can't wait. So be faithful, sons and daughters. Stand in days of testing. Don't fold. But this will be your end. No, this will be your eternity. And it will be so glorious. To God be the glory. Let us pray.